0: Hey everyone, Thomas here. Just a quick heads up that this week's episode is a little bit different than normal. Uh, this week, I had the privilege of interviewing Josh Gibbs to discuss his new book, Love What Lasts. If I, if you haven't heard of Josh Gibbs before, Josh Gibbs is an educator. He is an author. He's a speaker, um, and he uh, his we've discussed his work a number of times on the podcast. We've talked about uh, his first book, Love What Lasts. We've talked about something they will not forget. His book of essays on Christmas, I think our episode is titled In Defense of Christmas, Um, but we've covered his work a number of times. Josh has been on the podcast before to be interviewed for one of his earlier pamphlets, and um, it was a privilege to have him back. Uh, We talk about a few resources at the end of this conversation, but just want to put them at the front as well. If you're interested in picking up a copy of the book that we're going to discuss, which again is Love What Lasts. You can find that at CirceInstitute.org. We also discussed that um, Josh has an upcoming online summer conference. So if you are an educator, if you are involved in classical education, you're going to want to check that out. That's at gibbsclassical.com slash conference. You can find more information there. Again, gibbsclassical.com slash conference. And if there's anything else about uh, Josh that you're interested in learning about, Your best bet is probably to check out gibbsclassical.com. I think that's all I have for intro. So I hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Josh Gibbs. Well, Josh Gibbs, welcome back to Classical Stuff You Should Know. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you very much.
0: It's a pleasure to have you back. Um, we were talking just before we started recording, but I've really enjoyed Love What Last, your newest book. Um, I was hoping to ask a couple questions around that book. I'll, I have a lot of questions about how you are writing so much. Uh, I think since we've last spoken, you put out a pamphlet. You've put out your multiple articles a week, put out another book, and you just – were. T- I, I hope this is public. You're talking about you're putting out another yeah. book later this year. Um, That's so right. I have no idea how you do yeah. all that. But let's um, – Let's start with uh, your your most recent book, um, Love yeah. What Lasts. Um, let's just start from the from the beginning. W- why did you want to write this yeah. book?
1: In the first chapter of the book, I described the experience that most immediately gave rise to the felt need to write it, which was a trip to the movie theater um, many years ago now, where my wife and I it was a it was a Friday and it was summer and. We could see whatever we wanted. Our kids weren't with us. And um, the option really that was before us was Jurassic World 2. But I'd also heard really great things about First Reformed with Ethan Hawke, an actor I love. And so we were confronted with this choice, and we bought a ticket for the dinosaur movie. And we were very early, and while I sat in the theater waiting for this ridiculous dinosaur movie to begin, I tried to imagine what I would say to anyone who asked me to justify my choice. And I knew that First Reform Reform was this movie getting great press, and it had been personally recommended to me by a number of friends. It was um, written by Paul Schrader, a director that I first became interested in back in the late 90s. Um, I've loved Ethan Ethan Hawke ever since I saw Gattaca in 1997. I I adore Ethan Hawke who got the lead in this really juicy role about religion from a great Catholic writer. And I saw a dinosaur movie. (laughs) And I I was trying to imagine how I could possibly justify this decision to anybody that would ask me, why did you see this dumb dinosaur movie that you knew you were going to forget about the second you walked out of the theater when you could have seen First Reform and I realized as I was sitting in the theater waiting for the film to begin, um, there is no justification. This was just a bad decision. This was a worthless decision. Um, I deserve to feel guilty. <laughs> I deserve <laughs> to feel very bad about this. And um, uh, I think it was like a you know a year after that that I finally saw First Reform. Yeah, and um, it was. Amazing. It was so good that I I watched the first 45 minutes of it and then I stopped it because I was I was so impressed with it. And I, I told my wife, we have to watch this together. I only watched the first 45 minutes, we have to watch it. And we watched it. I ended up talking with a colleague about it, convincing him to watch it. We had this long conversation. And it was just an immensely profitable thing, spiritually profitable thing to have watched this movie. Yeah. Um, and I almost didn't see this movie because I saw this dumb dinosaur movie instead. And and it's a decision that I've made many times in my life to watch a dumb movie when I could watch a good one. And it and it struck me as a decision that many people are making on a regular basis. That, that we go to the theater and we see a better and a worse option. And so often we take the worst option. Yeah. And... Um, so kind of kind of coupled with that, I've been teaching classic literature for many years, and I, I think it was probably six or seven years ago now that I I had a particular day at you know in the classroom where I was teaching the same text four times over the course of a day to four different sections of two grades for weird scheduling reasons. At the end of the year, I was teaching Hamlet, and I was teaching the same scene from Hamlet four times in the course of a day. And I had this realization one time while I was teaching Hamlet for the fourth time. This is just as interesting, the fourth time, as it is the first time. And and I often found that I hit my sweet spot in terms of lecturing and discussion the third or fourth time that I was doing it. And and so, you know, I think all of these things kind of combined into the argument of the book, which is that Old things deserve to be treated differently than new things. Things that have lasted deserve to be treated differently than new things. Sure.
0: We'll get to it later, but just as you're drawing that connection between um, Hamlet and First Reformed, I wonder, do you find that films hold up in that same way of being worthwhile to return to multiple times? Is there some difference in the number of times or the, yeah. the profit from returning back to them? Just, Do you, do you have any thoughts on kind of – they're so different, right?
1: Man, I do. And I uh to be honest, I forget now whether this came up in the book or not, but um as I said, I'm a big fan of Ethan Hawke. Yes. And uh, when I saw Gattaca in 1997, I was 16, mm-hmm. and that was a transformative experience and and Gattaca was really the first movie and I've, I've spoken about this in other interviews and mm-hmm. and written about this. Gattaca was the first movie that I ever saw where I came out of the theater And I thought, that was amazing, and I have no idea why. (laughs) And I have nothing to say about it other than to tell other people, I saw this amazing movie, and you have to see it too. And I was probably, it was probably like five or six years later, after I'd seen the movie five or six times, that I finally began to put together what it was that I loved about this movie, what I thought was so good about it, what good it had done for me, um... Uh, so, you know, I, I love to stick up for old things, love to argue for old things, but I'm I'm by no means someone who thinks that only old things are good. Gattaca has been a a, a very helpful, like a spiritually helpful movie for me, but it took me a long time to figure out um, why that was true. You know, I, I've probably seen Gattaca 20 or 30 or 40 times now, wow. and there's a handful of movies I've seen that many times, and... um oftentimes it's it's not until you know maybe the 10th or 15th viewing that I am capable of putting into words why I um, why I respect the story so much and why I think that it's worth spending all of this time on so um you know I've read the Divine comedy 20 or 30 times right. and it is so good after 30 times but there are there are certainly modern films films made in the last 20 or 30 years by by people with social media accounts that are nonetheless very beautiful and and, and worth going back to.
0: Sure, um, that idea certainly comes up of returning to movies um, in love. What lasts? I will say um, one of uh, your pieces that's my favorite is um, uh, film as metaphysical coup, which I think is oh, from very good. Forma. Yeah, um, that's a but, deep cut right there. Yeah, <laughs> but, but you reference Gattaca as one. At least for some time, I don't know if this is still the case. I think annually you were watching that film. Is that do you yeah, still kind I, of have that that rhythm of film that you're watching? Um,
1: I I do. There's a um, there's still I would say there's probably seven or eight films that I watch mm-hmm. on an annual basis. This uh, coming year is going to be the ninth year in a row that I've watched the Grand Budapest Hotel. I only watch that once a year. I watch that on New Year's Day. Um, I always watch. Uh, lost in Translation before I take my first road trip over the course of the summer. Uh, I generally watch Chris Marker's *Sans Salil before I take a road trip over the course of the summer. Uh, I try to watch Remains of the Day every fall. Um, there's a handful of movies I try to watch every fall. Um, but, but, uh, let's see. Um... Yeah, Gattaca is a film. I think it's probably been two years since I saw it. Uh I watch um The Life of Quantic with Steve Zizu on the first Friday, Friday of December. Um, I watched that one with my wife. Uh next year will be my seventh year doing that. Um, Fantastic Mr. Fox is every Thanksgiving. Um, yeah, so I I'd say there's probably half a dozen films that I still have like a kind of uh contractual obligation to watch on certain <laughs> days of the year. That's funny. and <laughs>
0: most of those are actually in this last paragraph too. So it's uh it's, it's I wasn't sure if you'd actually go through all of them. That's that's almost all the movies you list at the very end of that article. Oh, is it really, <laughs>
1: okay. it really is. yeah, yeah that, uh, that's it. I you know I, I probably try to watch um probably watch Die Hard every summer as well. Um yeah there's there's probably ooh, there's probably a couple of those that I'm gonna yeah. keep myself as I'll
0: remember it in a half an hour, but uh, oh man, but now I want to go down the Die Hard rabbit trail because that I wonder how that fits yeah. in with your. I guess let's let's take all the like just as a over the course of Love What Last, you kind of have this like centering idea of of bucketing um, books, film, media, art into these different kind of groupings. Um, yeah. Can, you know, can you talk? Can you talk through those groupings? Maybe you know what is the difference between sure. a Jurassic World and and a First Reformed when you get down to it.
1: Right. Um, Well, uh, the book argues that there are three categories of all cultural artifacts, and this would include um, clothing, this would, uh, like this is often trends in food, in addition to books and movies and things, which is um, often what we think of when we think of culture, books, movies, and things. Um, And those three categories are, are the common, the uncommon, and the mediocre. And the book argues that the well, common and uncommon. Common things are things that last a lifetime. Um, they're they're good things. They're not very good. They're plain good. And upon entering into the cultural imagination or the social imagination, they can be depended upon to last for about three generations or seventy five years. At which point, they begin to lose their value, um, and they they make less and less sense to us beyond the seventy five year mark. Um, there are things that last eternally. Uh, Paradise Lost, Beowulf, uh, Goldberg variations, uh, various Brequiams. Um, and those are things that that are resistant to any kind of corruption at all. They they seem to grow. There's they're created in such a way that the time um, deepens them as opposed to corrupting them. Uh, and then there's mediocre things, and mediocre things are wildly popular in the short term and very unpopular in the in the long term. Um, mediocre things are su- uh, super sensual. They are uh, wildly entertaining, and very funny. They're very sexy, very slick, very catchy. Um, it's like Transformers movies and Drake and H and M fashion mm-hmm. and fried tacos and whatever KFC's putting out this week. And they just appeal in this, like, overbearing, almost pornographic way to our basest impulses. And I say that without without claiming that it's necessarily a sin to eat a chilupa or something like that. <laughs> but they appeal to the, the base interests that we have, and we lose interest in them very quickly. So they're they're here and then they're gone. They're very popular and then they're very not popular. Um, so this is most pop music. I mean, this is most like any number one hit this week is going to be nowhere next week. Like the songs that fill a dance floor in June are going to clear a dance floor in August. Mm -hmm. Um, This is like Old Town Road by Lil Nas X. This is any Post Malone song. This is anything that everyone thought was amazing 18 months ago that everyone knows is lame today. Kind of fits into the mediocre category. And And the book argues that mediocre as a as a species of art is relatively new it's it's maybe 200 years old
0: and it's sort of this
1: this byproduct of the philosophy of the uh, the French revolution hmm.
0: can you say more about the um so the the mediocre thing is is appealing to something like it is it is actually appealing in some way that part is not an illusion like there is an enjoyment yeah. to and it's like a you talk about how it's kind of an overplayed enjoyment it's it's focused on right. something that like is enjoyable, right. but it's like kind of amps it up to, you know, it, it takes it to 11 or whatever. Um, right. I'm wondering, is, is that a function, do you think, of the intention behind why those pieces of the, those those artifacts are created? Or is there something else going on there? I think that what it's the,
1: the very meaning? purpose. Yeah, I, I think that, that when they create this kind of um, like viral hype that surrounds them, they're, they're working according to their purposes. Yeah. Um, and so, the like the kind of example that I give in the book of of how this has panned out um, is if you compare like a film, like I think it, it's so easy to do this with film. Like the the book often uses film as an example, even though I wouldn't say that film is the primary subject of the book, but it's just so so convenient. Um, that if, that if you look at like uh, like a like a film from the nineteen fifties where a, where a seductive woman wearing a slinky dress enters a scene. Um, I think everyone's seen a movie from the 1950s where a woman wearing a slinky dress appears. And you're like, yeah, my mother wears that to church. Like, that's <laughs> not all that. What well, Do you think that's really sexy? Oh, weird. Okay. Well, like 75 years ago, everyone was so chaste right. that the clothing that my mother wears to church would have, really turned a guy on uh, and, and you could kind of do like a side-by-side comparison of like a quote-unquote sexy dress from 55 65, 75, 85, 95 and that the, the difference between all of these is, is pretty basic that that the the neckline gets lower and the hem gets higher like and it's not rocket science right. um, and you could take what counted as an exciting movie from the 50s and what counted as an exciting movie from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s and the explosions get bigger and the cuts get faster. And it's, and it's all very mechanical. Like, like, it's the kind of thing that, uh, honestly, an AI program could do. Sure. And if, it strikes me that, that you could, like, pump uh, Transformers 2 into an AI program and say, make this more exciting. Yes. and Right. Make this more exciting. And it would essentially turn Transformers 2 into Transformers 3. Right. Um, that it's the kind of adjustment that a computer would make. It's this one-to-one correlation. Like, yeah. if if a skirt's this short, it's this exciting. Then a little shorter is a little more exciting. If an explosion right. that this big is exciting, and an explosion that's this much bigger. Um, and this is, but this is not the way that brilliance works. So it's not the way that beauty works. Like you can't take Christ carrying the cross by El Greco and be like, make it, make it more pious, and turn it up. Yeah. And, like, wow, it's even more pious than before. Whereas you can make a, you can make a script more exciting, you can make an yes. explosion bigger, you can make a film more exciting by by amping up the the editing. Yeah. Um, and that there's this essentially there's this kind of materialistic element of excitement, and there's this spiritual element of beauty. And the materialistic element of excitement is like the kind of thing that even a robot can figure out, whereas it really takes a god to figure out how to make something more beautiful, which is why whenever we find something that's actually beautiful, we hold on to it like it's a rare thing because it is. Because gods don't appear in our midst all that often.
0: Which then leads to a kind of stability across time, right? You you yeah. talk about how there's like um, um, when you look at theological writings for uh, across a thousand years, the, the the classics can can communicate with each other. There's a there's a consistency right. across them. Whereas with new things, standards change so quickly that there are these upsets every three five years. Um, right. You kind of lose that over time as as you That's move right. into the mediocre. Um, I wonder, as a part of this book, or. Do you have any sense for your example of like the movie from the 1950s we now look at as as chaste or, or traditional, but at the time there must have been people looking at that thinking, this is outlandish. How, how dare someone dress this way or look this way? Um, I, I've recently been reading film criticism from John Simon, who I guess was writing from the 70s up through. I think he passed um, he passed in the 2000s, but had stopped writing by that point. but he was he he, he was very cranky for a very long time. Um, I just wonder if you have any sense for that. Of um, uh, is, is that just standards have moved over time that we are offended by different things now than we would have been fifty years ago? Um, yeah, you know, or is there something that was actually good in that nineteen fifties film that um, that that should have been seen by the critics of the time also?
1: Yeah, there's some. There's certainly something that moves. There are certain standards that move across time and certain standards that don't. Um, so, so far as like cultural. I mean, so far as cultural standards are concerned, there's certain things that you can't portray in a film these days without, I mean, without getting a lot of flack for it. So if you look at, you know, if you look at the Hayes Code, the Hayes Code prohibits um, stories that mock the clergy. Like you can't make fun of a man um, who's a priest or a pastor in a film before 1968. Um, and, And really you can't, not make fun of a pastor or a priest today. Like that's right. Like like and it's, it's sort of interesting that after you stop making it a rule, the opposite becomes a rule. Right. Um, I I do think that there are and this is gonna be like a really small segment of of films and maybe music too. Um, the passage of time does have a kind of chastening effect
0: Mm.
1: on things that last. Um, So I've got an article for, actually, I've got an episode of Proverbial coming out, Mm. uh, which is about why I don't let my kids listen to Taylor Swift, (laughs) but I do let them listen to David Bowie, Mm. um, even though if you were to do a side-by-side comparison of them in terms of morals and ethics like one is not vastly superior to the other right um i, I do think that there's a kind of chastening effect that occurs over the long haul of time where things that previously appeared shocking are kind of rendered allowable and that there is a kind of and there is a kind of mystery in the passage of time that has a way of straightening things out that seemed irresolvably crooked i mean i think this is why I think this is why the Lord says to Judas, "What you're about to do, do quickly, like get it over with." That the passage, that the the healing effects of time might begin, Um, and so I think that there's a kind of safety in older things, things that have been vetted by time, things that have been washed by time, Um, and I'm I'm just far more comfortable with my, uh, you know, with my children reading and watching and listening to things that are very old and very new. And and part of that is because and this is a um this is something I've talked about with Andrew Kern often, often enough. Um he brought up um you know going to college in the 1970s and and then kind of dropping out and and not being aware of popular culture and then kind of coming back in the 1980s and being amazed that that the um the disco of the 80s had turned into like synth rock of the of the or disco of the 70s that turned into synth rock of the 80s and he and he commented that like there's really no telling where popular culture is going to go like there's not this natural progression and if you're only if you're only um, uh, you know if your only standard is what's popular, you're just going to go along with wherever everything's going, and there's no telling where it's going to take you, which is why I don't want my kids listening to Taylor Swift. It's not because – I mean, her music is as amoral as gangster rap. It's all about me and, and um, you know, who I am as a person and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but it's also wildly popular now. And if you fall prey to the popular stuff now, you're, you're – like surfing on this wave and you kind of have to go wherever it goes. Whereas if you're just reaching back as far as just 10 to 15 years in the past, you have to make a deliberate choice over what you're doing, which means that you're not going to just go wherever popular culture takes you, which is why I'm just generally more comfortable with my kids listening to anything that's like 25 years old or reading anything that's 25 years old because I know that they're not reading it because they want to tap into the zeitgeist some kind of conscious effort has to be made on their part in order to choose this thing, as opposed to them, you know, just walking out and, you know, raising a finger to the cultural wind and saying, well, "What's popular now? Okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll listen do to whatever that. that is." Right.
0: And that's uh, and especially if it's twenty or twenty-five years old, it's been passed down at least one generation, right? Even if it's, and it's at least right. it's on the cusp of it, I suppose. And so you, right. you have that. It's a thing I loved. It's actually lasted. At least 20 years, which is not much. At least 20 years. Right. It's still something.
1: but it's a higher standard than just what's popular this week.
0: Sure. do you have any category for um what might be called popularly like a like a guilty pleasure or something that you enjoy but you know that you shouldn't? Or or, or is that sin? Like is that
1: uh, just an acknowledgement <laughs> that I like little things? Um okay. So I think that um there's the term guilty pleasure kind of in my mind breaks out into multiple different categories and then the term is often used in a very loose sort of way um, so so an example might be like say someone knows say someone knows what good things are mm-hmm. say someone knows that um, you know, you're not going to do gonna do a whole lot better than Mozart's Requiem right? or the Goldberg Variations. Say somebody knows that uh, Josquin de is about as good as religious music gets. Say somebody knows that you know the Anglicans kind of triumphed with their understanding of Christmas and that the aesthetics of the Anglican Christmas is about as high as things get. Um, and and then at the end of all of that. They're like, but I still have this thing for the song Save Tonight by Eagle and Cherry from 1998. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I don't the person who knows, who knows that Goldberg variations uh Mozart's recommendation are about as good as it gets, I think that they have to actually have to feel guilty hmm. about something like Save Tonight, because I think Save Tonight's a great song. Um and I, I think the fact that Save Tonight's not gonna last 300 years doesn't mean that it's not good for what it is. Um, I think Save Tonight's a brilliant song. I think it's, I guess, one of the more pious pop songs of the last 50 years. I put it up there with uh, Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys. Uh, I put it up there with Keep Your Hands to Yourself by the Georgia Satellites. It's just this pious pop song. Um, and so maybe the person who has these very high tastes feels a little chagrined to admit right. an affinity for a lower thing, but you got to get over that. Um, you got to <laughs> acknowledge that that common things have a worth, yeah. um, and that and that a little respect for the the masters of the of the present genre is not un. Um, Unworthily placed or unworthily given. Even Edmund Burke says that somewhere in, in Reflections on the Revolution in France. It's like, you gotta give credit to people that figure out the popular style and master it. Like there's nothing, nothing wrong with giving a little respect for people that figure out the trend of the week and they kind of own it. Um and so, you know, if if uh if somebody who appreciates good things is like, you got to hand it to Michael Jackson, man. He figured it out. (laughs) He had something down that nobody else did. I don't think you have to feel guilty about it. But but that's, I don't think that's the guilty pleasure the way that the term is often used. I think the term guilty pleasure means like uh, because I'm so aware I've earned the right to like really wretched things. And that's often what it means. Um, and and so as long as we're making this distinction between the guilty pleasure, where well, you're acknowledging that like "Eagle Eye Cherry's Save Tonight" is a great song, yeah. um, but that um, like some things seem like allowable guilty pleasures. Maybe that's a right. paradoxical term, um, or that you really don't need to feel guilty about them, whereas others do. I mean, if you're, uh, I mean, there's some, some lines are not going to cross if game of thrones is your guilty pleasure you should feel guilty about that like that's not cool I'm not I'm not going that far um you should feel bad if, if game of thrones is your guilty pleasure you should feel bad about that so so i i do think there's a there's a point where something is like so disgusting and wretched and servile and profane that that you don't get to draw a circle around it and claim that your understanding of theology makes it okay for you to indulge in this wretched thing Sure. Um, but but I think that that guilty pleasure is kind of this vague term. It's, it's too often applied to too many things, right. um, and and I'm unwilling to say that Game of Thrones is a guilty pleasure. Is the same usage of the term as game of, as guilty pleasure for like a great pop song from 25 years ago that has something credible to offer, even though it's not block.
0: Sure. Can you say more of um uh? what makes game of thrones what kind of sets it in that in that category where it's kind of beyond the pale um in the book you talk about you know there there there's art that we might call moral but it's still trash right it's right. Uh, it's bright colors it's loud music it 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 de- right. you know, degrades the soul but at the end everyone's friends with each other and like that that would not be a good right. use of one's time um you know, whereas something like Game of Thrones perhaps is more artfully made, but is it the sure. is it the message of it? Is it the what you're seeing on the screen itself? What what's different about that?
1: I think that a big part of it's what you're seeing on the screen itself, and I and I do think that that counts. Um, so um, I would I would classify myself as as someone who is honestly, I, I I's probably going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. I feel the same way about censorship that most people feel about free speech. Mm-hmm. Like I'll, I'll put myself down as the Burkean conservative that likes the idea of censorship. Um, and, and the idea of like a council that reviews stuff and says, no, that's too gross. We're not doing it. I like that idea. Like I like the Hayes code. I like this, right. this group of like fuddy duddy old people that watches movies and says, um, the hemline is too low. You've got to, like, I like that. Like, I, sure. um, I would be okay if the censorship board was just a randomly selected group of people that were over the age of 75. Like, I, I wouldn't vet them any other way. Right. Um, but, like, while I say that, um, I'm by no means dismissing every piece of art that wouldn't pass the Hayes Code. So, um, I think that there are films that, could and would have been made during the Hayes Code, um, and would have been been made slightly differently. I think *Children of Men*. I think Alfonso Cuarón's *Children of Men* um, incredible. could and would have been made during the uh, during you know before sixty eight and the Hayes Code ended. Um, I'm still going to watch it. It's a rated R movie. It deserves to be rated R. Uh, I think it's you know the most the most uh, pious film. Of the last twenty five years, but it, but it's still rated R. So I, I don't want to make like this kind of one to one correlation between like oh no one should watch rated R movies because no one should hear these words and and um, you know see the human body being torn apart in, in visceral ways. Right. Um, at the same time, I, I do think the world would be better off that way. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I do think it would be better off if there was if there was a more exacting code for. Uh, for the government of popular culture. Yeah. Um so you know when it comes to something like Game of Thrones, I think the Game of Thrones is the reason why that one's off the table, I think, for Christians, is because it's become a byword for perversion. Right. Like every, like everyone knows that the deal with Game of Thrones is that it's nastier and more brutal and more perverse than all of the TV shows. And, and HBO made up made up kind of made uh you know, they made a lot of money off of creating shows that were nastier than every, anyone else was willing to pay. Um, and so, you know, for a Christian to engage in something like that and be like, "Well, you know, it's great storytelling," and so forth, I don't think that the world is so bereft of great storytelling that you got to expose yourself to that sort of thing just to get your good storytelling fixed. Um, at the same time, I don't think that um, I don't think a ratings I don't think a ratings code should have ultimate authority. So, I mean this is, you know, this is kind of one of those classic um this is kind of one of those classic examples where um uh most Christians kind of throw in the towel simply because it's hard to say what's allowable and what's not. Like like modern people love to be like, well, it's hard to say. And so they don't even try.
0: So therefore I can watch um, whatever I want to. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, it's hard to say what's allowable and what's not, therefore I can watch whatever. That's exactly right. Um, or, or like it's, it's hard to tell what's modest and what's not, which means that there's no such thing as modesty. No, 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 no. The fact that it's, uh, I'll agree. It's hard to tell what's modest. It's, it's really hard to create an objective standard and be like that dress is modest. That's not. Those shoes are modest. Those shoes are not. Uh, but, but my goodness, like man up. The fact that it's difficult doesn't mean that it can't be done. Sure. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't mean you have to throw in the towel and be like, no one will ever figure out what modest means because it's a little hard to tell. Um, I mean, I, I would be willing to say it's hard to. There can be points where it's hard to tell what the difference between a masculine thing and a feminine thing is. Don't quit trying though. It's very necessary that we that we keep trying. And the fact that there's a point where the where the uh, the boundaries blur doesn't mean that the boundaries are always hard to tell apart. Or the fact that it's a little hard to tell apart at certain points means that we throw in a town and we give up completely.
0: In the in the book, you talk about uh, essentially turning to other people, letting other people have that input into the, yeah. the films that you're watching, the the music you're listening to, the books that you're reading. Um, so, you know, one way to take that is what you're talking about is someone actually in official power that can dictate what is and isn't on screen. The other sure. is to have people you trust. Um, right, I guess I'm curious how you how you find those people or is that literally you have your close friends and you trust their taste or um are there magazines you're reading like how do you how do you even yeah. think about knowing what to what what to consume
1: Man I would start with friends I would start with friends yeah. that you trust um and I would say that uh I would say that everyone ought to identify like four or five friends that you have where if I mean if there there are certain people in my life where if where if I have a friend who says you know You've got to see this movie. Like I'm going to see it, yeah. um, not because the movie looks good, but because that's my friend and I've known him for 20 years, and I, and I trust this person. Like we have compatible tastes, and and he's given me great recommendations before. And even if I don't love the movie, whenever I'm done watching it, we can right. we can discuss it, and it'll it'll be for some greater purpose. Um, and the same thing is true of records, um, or, or books. So I would say that you ought to first go by your friends, um, because because one of the one of the great purposes, not the great purpose, this is not the great purpose of popular culture, but one of the great purposes of popular culture is giving people things to talk about in common. And, And I know that seems like that seems very basic. That seems like the low hanging fruit. That seems like the easiest. Uh, kind of argument, and it's an argument that's often been overused. I think so. I want to I want to kind of make that claim with a grain of salt. Sure. Um, but but one of the great things about popular culture is that it gives us things to talk about with other people. And and I'm no great lover of sports, but I think that one of the great things about sports is that it's a good thing to talk about with people. Um, kind of like Andy Dillard says that the weather is always worth talking about. The weather is sports for people who don't follow sports. Sure. Uh, but 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 merely having a thing to talk about, I think, is is worthwhile um, if it's not going to cost you a lot of time or money or, or or effort, and if it has some kind of general purpose of good. And I think that sports could kind of fit that qual you know those qualifications. Weather definitely does. Certain films and books. Um, so so I would I, I would say that that starting with recommendations from your friends. Merely because it's it's good to have. I've had great conversations about bad movies. Hmm. Um, I've had great conversations with friends about about movies that were terrible, and it was almost like Job's friends questioning Job, where like a bad theology of his friends brings up the brilliant theology of Job. And I've I've watched terrible movies and like rip them apart with friends and it's turned into something wonderful where well, we had a realization about what makes for a great story simply because we saw a terrible story yeah. together. Um, obviously that can be taken too far. But, um, so I, I you know, I would say go with friends first but then um, uh, you know I in this day and age I would say that by the age of, you know, by the time you're 35 or 40, if you have a laptop and use the internet that you should have a few media outlets that you kind of trust. But there should be a few critics that you take seriously. And uh, I mean there's a handful of, of critics that I take seriously. Um I mean if Anthony Lane recommends something highly I'd see anything that Anthony Lane recommended. Um I I mean I would see because um I would see anything that Sophia Coppola recommended. I would see anything um I don't know anything that Otessa Mashveg took seriously. I would take seriously. So, so I think that there's also like contemporary artists that you take seriously. You know, sure. and if you know a favorite writer or musician of yours is like, you should check out this record. That that, that makes sense.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, far more sense than just being like, well, what's popular this week? Okay, I guess I'll check it. Out. Sure.
0: Uh, just um, just because you brought that up of the um, I, I, many years ago, you used an example that. The quality of a movie is essentially: Will you get more in conversation out of the film than the length of the film? Um, Right. I I don't think that comes up here, but I think that it's a good heuristic. It's a good rule of thumb to say: Am I going to talk about? You know, I'm not going to talk about Transformers for more than the two and a half hour runtime. Right. Like, there's no way I can
1: do that. Right.
0: Um, But I guess uh, just on the on the that side of um, on talking about bad films and still coming to something true or interesting. Do you yeah. have any interest? In, I feel like there's been this like proliferation of, of podcasts and videos that are essentially making fun of those bad movies. Is that kind of like the other side of the coin of what you're getting at? Like you're mm. focused on the let's see the good thing. Is there right. value then in the laughing at bad things also or do you see that that kind of, or are there problems there or is it something that you even think about?
1: Yeah, I think that there's, um, I, I, here's what I'd say about that. I think that when an example of that comes up that that genuinely requires it that it's an unusual it's an unusual kind of instance and you and you know it and you can spot it from a mile off so um if uh so i, I mean here's an example um if it's 2009 and all your students are going to see Twilight this weekend, right? And you want to go see it? Knock yourself out. That's fine. <laughs> um, and if and if when you buy the ticket, you're like, "This is going to be garbage." Sure. Um, I, I think that there's uh, a lot of people that are trying to build careers out mm-hmm. of that. Yes, um, and I think that's. Dumb. I think it's dumb. <laughs> to build a career out of ripping bad things apart. I think that you lose a sense of true north if if you try that. Um, and it and it very quickly uh, your standards get skewed in ways that you couldn't possibly predict. Um, and it, that you also kind of overvalue your own intellect. Uh, in the end, that you think of yourself as being more clever. Yeah. Um and you develop this habit of going into things to tear them apart, yeah. it lowers your standards. I mean, it, it's bad for any number of reasons. But like I mean, like if a teacher, if every three years a teacher wants to see something wildly popular just because right. all your students have seen it and you know exactly what you're getting into, if you're if every male student in your high school is seeing Deadpool 2 this weekend,
0: right,
1: and you're like, I'm gonna go see this, okay. Um, but if that becomes, if it becomes this kind of excuse where you're like, I gotta stay in touch with culture. Um, and so I'm going to see every popular thing that comes out and I'm going to pretend that I'm above it every single time. I think that, I think that's delusional. I think that you're, um, you don't understand what spirit you're of Mm -hmm. if you're giving over all of your time to this, um, this stupidity. And, and claiming that it's not actually going to affect you and that you're not being shaped by it. Um, I mean, I've been, I've been deeply shaped. uh, This is a, I think a claim that's addressed in the book. I've been deeply shaped by things that I claimed I was beyond at the time that I saw them. Right. Um, I, I have gone into things, I've gone into movies, gone into records, um, where I was at the time I was convinced that my superior education was going to keep me aloof from this thing and at this kind of objective distance and ended up getting those things just wrapped around the axle of my mind and never really letting go. Um, so this is an special temptation to people in the classical Christian world who are like, well, I've read Aristotle's rhetoric, therefore I can watch Deadpool 2 and it's not going to have an effect on me. Uh, you're naive. Like that's not how it works. Um, People with subtle minds are even more affected by that stuff. Yes. This is Beatrice's bold dressing down of Dante uh, when he reaches the top of Mount Purgatory. Yeah. Um, when she's like, yeah, the people that have well-formed minds, the weeds grow even r- like more prolifically in good soil than bad soil. Um, and so if the if you've got a good education and you've read Aristotle and Cicero and Augustine um and you're and you're feeding that mind garbage the garbage is not being sifted through it's those are seeds that are going into your brain that are going to grow out even more tenaciously than if than if you're some scrub that had to read you know, Jurassic Park in ninth grade and you don't really know how to think and you don't really know how to feel um, if if you didn't get an education you're probably safer watching Deadpool than somebody who did get an education you did get an education something like that could wreck you uh, in the same way that like um, you know somebody who's tummy and out of shape can eat a burger and nothing's going to happen to them whereas if you're like an Olympic quality athlete and you eat a burger you're going to get wasted for days like you're not going to be good for Time trials are nothing. Um, so, so, like the more finely tuned and excellent the thing is, the worse it responds to bad stimuli. It's not like you've created some kind of like super hyper powered machine that like turns through anything less than goodness. Right. Um, it's actually affecting on a, it's affecting on a more subtle level than you recognize.
0: Which I think uh, I think you bring up in the book in the context of worldview analysis that essentially yes, is right. like. Um, you know the purpose of, of worldview analysis is to allow the person taught to essentially consume anything, right? Any movie right. that's put in front of them can become either uh, it's exposed for the lie that it is, or we find the good piece of it and we kind of consume that, move on to the next thing, and just grind that's through right. everything that we that we go through. But um, Uh, you talk about that being like an insufficient way of approaching art, an insufficient way. Uh, Again, I'm I'm focused more on film here. You acknowledge this before. The book is not only about film. It's just an easy example to point to for a lot of these things. Right. Um, Can you just say more about that? Um, Just like, what what are the problems of worldview analysis? Why why is that not a good way to approach things?
1: So, well, I I wouldn't say that worldview analysis is a bad way to approach things. I think it is insufficient in and of itself to account for the length and breadth of all the cultural artifacts that you're going to have to, you're going to have to deal with. Um, so uh, uh, so culture, uh, worldview analysis is going to be enough to tell you – worldview analysis ought to be enough to tell you uh, after listening to, like, 20 seconds of a Drake song, uh, this is nihilistic garbage. Right. So, um, you know, in that sense, I, I'm willing to give, like, two and a half cheers for worldview analysis. Worldview analysis can absolutely crunch through the onslaught of popular culture – that's not really worth a second look or second thought. Um, you, uh, you know, when the you know the latest uh, Cardi B song comes on, um, worldview analysis is going to let you know that you shouldn't listen to that. And it's going to let you know that it's a waste of time, like 10 right. seconds in. Um, but uh, at the same time that worldview analysis is great for sorting out, like, like making this kind of easy judgment between um this might be worth my time versus this is obviously not worth my time worldly analysis is not sufficient for sorting out the divine comedy hmm. so not every cultural artifact deserves the same level of attention and this is you know this is the first two chapters of the book i realized this and i realized this when i started teaching classic literature that the that books like paradise lost and the divine comedy are very different And require something different than, you know, Jurassic Park. And a simple, you know, kind of simple criteria could be applied to Jurassic Park. And you can figure out whether it's worth your time, whether it's just totally, you know, totally wrong, totally fallacious, or whether it might be worth, you know, giving a few minutes more to. But that's not a kind of judgment that you're making with Paradise Lost. Right. like, very few people are deciding um, whether a work in popular culture is the sort of thing that they ought to open up their soul to in the same way that you open up your soul to something like Paradise Lost. So, um, even something like, like, even a work of popular culture that I respect, uh, Gattaca, McCarthy's The Road, I'm still not treating these things the way that I treat Paradise Lost. Sure. Um, Paradise Lost has lasted for 400 years. It's been handed down, um, you know, by 16 generations of people. It's been translated into every language. Um, Paradise Lost is a book that my people, it's a book of Western societies, right. it's a book that mankind gave to me. That's not how Gattaca came to me. Sure. Um, and so, you know, when my entire culture says Paradise Lost is worth your time, um, and as um, you know, Stephen Turley says in one of his early lectures on truth, beauty, and goodness, um, true, good, and beautiful things made us. We didn't make them. Hmm. Paradise Lost is a book that made me. I didn't make it. Yeah. Um, whereas Gattaca is like still one of those things that's my culture produced, and so so it's this more symbiotic kind of relationship. I'm part of the world that created this movie. This movie is kind of responding to the world that I had a hand in creating. It's not going to last forever. It's good now. It's not going to be good forever. Um, whereas Paradise Lost deserves a higher level of respect. Right. And I think this accords with Scripture because Scripture teaches us to think in terms of, res- uh, of respect, in terms of like uh, proportionality. Like when the elder who governs well... Is described as being worthy of double honor. I assume that it's double the portion that parents are worthy of, that honor your parents, double the portion for elders who govern well. Yeah. Um, and that there's you know, in the temple, there's a holy place, but there's a most holy place. When Jesus is asked what commandments are most important, he's not like, Well, they're all important, duh. He's <laughs> like makes the two that are most important. Um, and so this like a scale of glory: angels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim. Like like all of heaven is arranged in this in this kind of ascendant hierarchy of glory. All the things on earth exist in this hierarchy of glory. And and something like Paradise Lost or Mozart's Requiem right, sit pretty close in terms of earthly cultural artifacts. They sit pretty close to the top of that. Or something like Gattaca, I mean, it's it's low, it's worthy of some kind of respect, but it's not the kind of respect that um these ancient things deserve certainly not the kind of you know glory that Virgil has and that Homer has or something. Um, and so I I think that uh, the cultural analysis can is capable of sorting out the lowest level of glory there is, um, but the, but the worldview analysis is not capable of sorting out these higher realms of glory, um, these things that formed us that have authority over us. Um, whereas it's, it's it's really a how about this worldview analysis is an effective tool but it's kind of very narrow range uh, of effective usage that's I fair. guess I would say
0: because I think it presents itself as kind of an all encompassing again we're yeah. going to teach you how to handle everything you're going to totally. experience from here on out and it's probably not sufficient for that but no absolutely
1: I think you're, you're totally right
0: I think that's fair I guess uh, just going with that I mean you are someone who is putting out. Um, you record. I think proverbial is every two weeks. You have the cedar yeah. room with Cersei. Your, um, your. Um, this is your. Is this your fourth book now? You've had uh, how to be unlucky. Don't um, forget love what lasts. Blasphemers. Twenty um,
1: fifth.
0: Twenty fifth. Yeah, your book of essays on Christmas. Twenty
1: fifth, yeah. and then and this is Yeah.
0: Um, but I'm curious, just in your discussion of glory there and of like kind of yeah. things potentially entering into the canon. How do you, how do you understand your work in light of that? Um, I'm not going to, like,
1: <laughs> is, that, is that what you're going to do? That's a great work? question. It's a great yeah. question. No, I, it's not going to, it doesn't have the ambition to enter. Um, well, I mean, I'm going to say this and God, I, I hope this doesn't, this could sound hopelessly arrogant, but um, no individual person gets to decide what's in the canon and what's not. So if no individual gets to decide what's in the canon, I think that some individuals have had a sense that they were working on something special. Dante certainly had a sense that he was working on something special. Um, Milton also had a sense that he was working on something special. I'd be pretty surprised if someone like Jane Austen knew that her work was going to survive 200 years. Um, So I think that, that most of my work is dated in such a way that it's probably got a 25 year lifespan Um, the best of it the best that I'm able to do I'm not going to beat three generations I'd be happy with one generation I'd be happy with still in print 25 years from now Um, and uh, I mean, at the same time, it's impossible to say what's going to last. And, and I made this argument, I think I made this argument in the book, in the book. but the great classical heresy is claiming that something's going to last before it lasts. There's no such thing as an instant classic. Anytime I encounter somebody in classical education that uses the term instant classic, I'm like, you're, I'm revoking <laughs> your classical card. Like You have no idea what you're talking about. Sure. You're an you're an imposter. <laughs> um, if you think there's such a thing, it's a classic like instant heirloom. Like, if somebody ever referred to an instant heirloom, God, like, oh, it's passed down for nine generations. I just bought it today. <laughs> You're <what> crazy. Sounds- <laughs> you don't know what time is. You, don't, you can't count. You, you need to use your fingers more. Um, so, but uh, no one knows what's going to last. Um, I got a pretty good sense that nothing I've written is going to last more than 25 years. Um, and so... Uh, I mean, like, if it ever came down to it and someone was like, well, should I read How to Be Unlucky or should I read Consolation of Philosophy? Consolation of Philosophy, obviously. Um,
0: uh, But thankfully, it's a short book, so you you have time to come back to How to Be Unlucky. I I, I see what you did there. (laughs)
1: Um, But um, I think that the the books that I've produced are a part of... How about this? I would hope that the books that I've written... Are part of the small um, selection of people's time that's committed to new things, yeah. and that it, it, I, I, if if I met somebody at a conference, that was like your books sound really interesting, but I got too many old books to read. I wouldn't take that as an insult. Yeah. Be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, man. To be honest, like there's a lot. Like I write books that fit into a genre that I don't read a lot of myself, <laughs> so like I'm not. I'm not reading a lot of books that are like "How to Be Unlucky." I'm not reading a lot of books that are like "Love What Lasts." It takes a pretty special book in that, uh, you know, in that genre, for me to be like, "All right, I guess I'll read it." Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, Carl Truman's book "Rise and Triumph uh, of the Modern Self" was kind of the last book that that came out. Maybe one of the only books in the last five years that kind of fit into that little bit of history, a little bit of cultural critique, little bit of that I read. And I really enjoyed that. It was, an, I know, it, was a, it was a very worthwhile book. I was very, very glad to have read that. Um, but that's making up a pretty small part of my reading list. And I, I imagine that the books that I write are, are probably making up, uh, you know, the, the kind of minority report in, in most people's um, reading habits.
0: I, guess, I I just ask it because you have such a high regard for the classics even in your answer you're you're making reference to these other great books that are to be read but but your response to that is not therefore I shouldn't write therefore I shouldn't produce it's yeah you're still pointing people to those things I just yeah and maybe there's not a question there I just wonder like is that something you've thought about before of like you want to point yeah. people to these great works but you are still producing work yourself um yeah it doesn't sound it doesn't sound it's like a, it bothers you yeah
1: it doesn't bother me. It's a. I'll say that it comes up more often as a criteria hmm. for whether I hit the publish button on something that I've written for Cersei. Sure. Um, so I mean, there's hundreds of articles out there uh, that I've written and been ready to post, and I was like, man, this just isn't worth anybody's time. Um, I don't. I don't want to waste anybody's time with this. Um, and it's like I look back over the article and I'm like well, I mean, like, the argument here is true, I think it's sound, but man, who cares? Like, this just isn't important. Nobody needs to read this. Mm. Um, And so, uh, you know, I've I've had ideas for books that I've scrapped as well. Mm. Um, I've written a few chapters in books that I've scrapped. Mm. Um, You know, I would say um, I think at best, my work is a way of giving thanks for the canon. Um, yeah. That uh that that everyone needs a way of giving thanks for, for the good things that have that have formed them. And um and so you know when I think about the the works of art that I really love, like modern works of art that, really, that I really love, a lot of them seem kind of born out of gratitude for these mm. even older things that have lasted. And I and I think that that's one of the value of new things. that New things can show us how to give thanks for old things, right. um, in in creative and productive ways. Um, so you know, I mean, some of my in some of my favorite films, some of my favorite modern books, I, I would say are are giving thanks for ways. The books themselves are ways of giving thanks for older things. Yeah. Um, I, Cormac McCarthy's *The Road* is really a way of giving thanks for. Uh, the Odyssey, obviously, till we have faces, a way of giving thanks for the of psyche, um, and uh, that the, the creative way of giving thanks is a legitimate way of giving thanks, and it and it helps inform people on, uh, it helps inform readers on, on what it means to really be grateful that something exists, it, and it, to be really grateful is to shape your life around it, um, not merely to acknowledge from a distance that was good. Um, but to actually live differently, to behave differently, to act differently. Um, and, and I think that some of that living and behaving and acting is carried out in writing new music and writing new books, um, painting new paintings.
0: I think also just the, your role as a teacher that think of how many words are used in lesson plans or in writing up the the messages that will be given in the classroom that won't last beyond that teacher but are still so impactful to the people that that will receive that. So – There's that side of it too, where like, for there to be a next, you talk about this in the book, for there to be a next generation that is celebrating the works of Homer, they have to be taught about Homer. For someone to appreciate Boethius, they need to have read the Consolation. So that that's right. That's like a necessary part, even if yeah. And that's what you know. That's the reason we talk about old things too. Is like if we're going to point people to something, we'd rather it be that because like our podcast isn't going to last very long, but the works we talk about hopefully will except. Right. I think I think we did an episode on one flew over the cuckoo's nest, so maybe that one won't last, but <laughs> hopefully that's good. Um you probably thought my question was going this direction. I did, I did want to ask you how do you write so much? Like what is your do you have like a are you writing hours every day? I think at some point you said these came out of conversations with friends of yours. Um, just how where yeah. wh- how do you do this?
1: Um so I would say uh there's a different impetus behind behind the books than there is behind anything else. So, um, the podcasts, oh god, um, you know, I would say podcasts and articles. Um, I I write when I'm upset, All right. <laughs> I I, I, I've wondered right for a while. I'm being, I've wondered for a while if I'm people are terrified to talk to
0: you, like uh, like you'll be walking, yeah. like <laughs> you'll have some kind of debate around Veritas, right. and you'll go home and like you know bang out a thousand word article or something.
1: Um, uh, <laughs> don't don't say that too loudly. That's probably <laughs> the case. Um, so I, I I feel like I've um, I kind of pay for that because it's it's very easy to gossip about people that I'm too intimidated to talk to personally uh and there's there's lots of you know there's lots of rumors and lots of nasty things that are said about me behind my back because I'm too intimidated to talk to them personally um but uh yeah I, I've in' times where i I kind of I mean I kind of relish the role of like the Charles Barkley of classical Christian education um but it's but I mean it's uh, incredible yeah those who those you can't feel fear and feel anger at the same time anger casts out fear True. um and and I'm oftentimes when I sit down to, to write, I feel like the best things that I've written are written out of a out of a kind of fearless frame of mind mm-hmm. because I'm I'm frustrated by what I see yeah. and uh that's you know theres man, there's there's all these I swear there's all these articles that I want to write that are, that are that are nothing like what I do write. Like the articles that I really want to write are these these very very basic kind of reflections on I've had this article on the song I think is the best pop song written in the last 25 years. Thomas, I've been what's, sitting what's on this the song? for oh, I gotta save it. I gotta save it. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm gonna sorry. save yeah. this for the article. Yeah. I've been sitting on this article, this idea for this article for three years. Oh, and my gosh. Um, because it's not, um, I mean, it's not pressing. Like, there's nothing driving me to write this. And so, I've, you know, I've sat down to begin writing it a few times. Um, and it just doesn't seem all that important. So it's so almost everything that I write that I actually get to hit the publish button on seems important. And, it's, and when something seems important, you, like, make time for it. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, like the article I put up yesterday on Searcy, uh about... High school athletes getting away yes. with murder because we don't want to punish the team. Right. I mean, you can guess where that came from, right? I mean, like, there's no, there's no <laughs> surprises here. And I should say that, like, um, the articles that I write are not all about my school. I think people have this misconception uh, sometimes. Like, like, given who I am and the way that I represent myself, like, people like write me and tell me ridiculous stories all the time. Um, so, so after you know, you can present yourself to the public the way that I do. Like the number of people who write me and they're like, you won't believe what's going on in my school. And I'm like, yeah, I totally believe that. Um, So, you know, I, I work at a very good school. I, would, I wouldn't think that like all the things that I write are a reflection of problems at my school. Like I, I collect these stories. Um, i spent many hours like looking at classical Christian websites and, and considering the way that classical Christian schools represent themselves, scouring blogs and, and just seeing what the, the movement actually is and where it stands and all that. So, um, uh, I would I would hope no one would be under some kind of delusional belief that like um all of my articles have been ripped from the headlines of Veritas and sure. Richmond, Virginia. That's absolutely not the case. Um but, but when you're when you're frustrated, you find time to write. You know, yes. like if if you've got something important to say, you find time to write. Yeah. Um whereas the, that's not really the books. You know, the, the books that I write are always very different. Um because they're not born out of anything pressing. Like, if you're going to write a book, you're committing yourself to like an 18 month process. Right. So you can't you can't think of it as being super important in the same way hmm. that something that you write an article or do a podcast on is, is important. Um, yeah. You know, there's it's important to feed your kids tonight. It's important to have an inheritance for your grandkids, and the, the way that we work out these importance these very, important things is, is, is very different. One of them is going to require daily effort. The other is going to have like, you're going to commit yourself to it when you've got time and when it occurs to you. And I say that that's more like what a book is, that a book is, the books are written the way that you think of like, I want to give my kids and my grandchildren an inheritance. Um, and so, and so the kind of born more, more slowly that way.
0: That's um yeah. I, I, it's just interesting because uh, you you wrote articles for much longer than you've been writing books, correct? Haven't? Right. Haven't, yeah. You know, Go, um,
1: a... in, yeah. November. It'll be ten years for a certain sort of thing. Hmm.
0: And is, did you eventually get to a point where you realized that you had something that you felt that way that you know um, your relationship with Boethius was something that needed to be put into a book? It wasn't served by the format of the article. Like, is that kind of where that comes out of then?
1: Yeah. You eventually you realize. Um, yeah, eventually, the idea gets gets bigger than an article, um, and and that might be it that that um, you write the twelve hundred word article, and when you look at it in the end, you are like, it just doesn't do a whole lot in and of itself. Um, so, I mean, somebody somebody would be within their rights to notice that like the chapter length in How to Be Unlucky very short compared to. Love what lasts. Yes, like the length of my chapters has has stretched long. out over time, and and that's that's really because when I wrote How to Be Unlucky, I was I was nothing other than a blogger, um, and so you know there's a lot of chapters in that book. There, that honestly, there's a lot of chapters in How to Be Unlucky that sit in the blog article length,
0: sure.
1: whereas none of the chapters in Love What Lasts are that way. Like Love What Lasts is a Kind of a fully formed book, it's—I mean, it's the most bookish book that I've written. Um, and it feels more like a book. There's lots of footnotes and citations. I mean, um, it's kind of like, well, you know, I'm 41 now. I guess I better write something that that <laughs> looks and feels like a book. <laughs>
0: Well, I guess just to, to roll with that then you 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 mentioned that you have a, another book coming out later this year or that you'll finish later this year what's uh yeah
1: yeah that book is done um and it'll it'll go to uh, it'll go to editors and layout here in just a couple of weeks and um, that is a collection of dialogues with <laughs> students. Interesting. Um, so I've written I've written a number of dialogues over the years for, for Cersei. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and um, these are all dialogues with students, like Love What Lasts. Uh, these are uh, composites. Okay. Um, so these are like these are conversations that I feel like every adult has with, like whether you're whether you're a parent or whether you're a teacher, these are like perennial conversations that adults have with teenagers. Um, especially that Christian adults have with Christian teenagers. So there's a conversation about dating. There's a conversation about R-rated movies. There's a conversation about dress. There's a conversation about like just like if you work in a high school, if you're surrounded by 16-year-olds, you're just going to have these conversations over and over and over again. Some of them are a little more timely. There's a conversation about – um Optimism? Um, what is optimism? Um, uh, but then there's just, just more basic ones like um, should I date a non-Christian? Is that okay? Um, so none of the conversations in the book are about like Virgil but they are all conversations that I've had with Christian students over the years. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the point of the book uh, uh, like other books is um, I imagine this is a book that would be helpful for 16-year-olds to read, but I think it would be helpful for adults to read as well as a kind of instruction manual on how to talk to 16-year-olds. Sure. So I I do believe that most adults are entirely too sentimental when they're talking with teenagers. And that the primary goal in talking with teenagers is not to give them the truth, but to give them something that makes them feel better. Uh, or merely some kind of strategy for dealing with a problem, or a new interpretive lens for seeing things. And I think that giving people the truth is a little bit different than that. Um, so uh, I try to I try to make all the conversations as untheoretical and as common sense as possible.
0: Sure.
1: Um, this is a this is a book that. Um, be great for a youth group to read. If you're unfortunate enough to have to go to that, it would be great for uh, Sunday school. It would be great for, um, but it'd be great for teachers as well. Um, So that teachers, you know, the goal is to help teachers talk to teenagers in a way that teenagers can trust. Um, And there's, you know, there's a handful of uh, conversations I had with adults back when I was a teenager that, that had this kind of long, lingering effect on me. Um, and many of the best of those conversations were conversations where adults just spoke to me from the adult realm of truth and didn't try to <laughs> sugarcoat anything. Um, and, I, and I've been very grateful for those conversations. And so yeah. I wanted to try to present the way that I talk to students Um uh, I'm, I'm not sure if Circe is actually going forward with this, but the, but the book is very brusque. I think it's actually coming with the disclaimer. I could, I could <laughs> I be wrong on that. I think there's there may be a there may be like a trigger warning in the front of the book. that um, – What
0: was the? Uh, I, I'm sure it's been months at this point. But the, what was the article they yeah. put out about of like why we published Josh Gibbs or something? Like it, the I did not yeah. expect that your your water bottle article would get <laughs> this amount of blowback. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it was that one. Was man, that the water bottle article. Um, yeah, the, the water bottle article, and then articles about personality tests. Uh, yeah, have have always um, ruffled feathers. Um, really, like a lot of the articles, and and I should always put this in perspective. Like the article that I wrote on water bottles was probably like the most well liked well received thing that I wrote that year. Yeah. And nine people got angry. Um <laughs> really?
0: Okay, good. I, yeah, mind, I mean, it wasn't
1: like,
0: tons of people, but I guess it was only I, a few. Yeah,
1: I mean, it, it's far fewer than you think. Of course. Um, sure. uh, I mean, my, like the article was about banning water bottles from in-class yeah. usage, which my school did this year, banned water bottles from in-class usage. Um, and, and I mean, there's certainly this you know, small contingent of parents that are like, my child's basically going to die because they cannot have their IV drip of water constantly. Right. Um, but, uh, I, I, you know, I made this, uh, this is a comment that I made in How to Be Unlucky. Um, man, people receive negative feedback so much, they take it so much more to heart than positive feedback. Um, if you've got a stadium full of people cheering your name, and this one guy with his middle finger up in the back, you're gonna be like, "What did I do? What did I do?" And you're gonna, you know, like find that guy and be like, "What are you so upset about?" Like it's not enough to be, you know, to receive praise from all of these uh, these other people. Right. Um, so you know, the water bottle article was, was liked by a lot of people and really despised by you know nine people. A
0: very small number.
1: Yeah, uh, a, a very small number comparatively. But I I, I did find it telling how many people how many teachers were like. Yes, I hate those things. You're so right. Yeah. I, that was that was immensely gratifying. Um, when the announcement was made at Veritas that we were allowed to ban water bottles, uh, there was like a Bronx cheer that went. Oh, up really? Oh, was like, everyone's, <laughs> all of the faculty was just delighted. Like it, it felt like. Um, I think the Death Star, had just blown up.
0: <laughs> Haven't you said that that uh, like all your positive feedback is from teachers, people who are actually in the classroom? Yeah. But, and then all the questions yeah. are from people who who aren't, right? So
1: Yes. I as general as you know, that's a general character that every now and then there's a teacher. Oh, I mean the other article like this was the um was the article I wrote about uh like rich people that go on vacation in September.
0: Mm-hmm. Missing school days, right? Was it that one? Yeah, like, uh, yeah, it's like these these
1: families that are like two weeks into the school year are like, I'm leaving for a week to go to the Bahamas. And when I get back, I'm going to need you to tutor me during lunchtime and after school for all the stuff that I missed. And you're like, No, why would I want to do that? That's ridiculous. Are you going to pay me for my time? Like, You are aware that there is a 10 week break over the course of the summer where you're supposed to do that. Did you just want to get a good deal on a rental in the Bahamas? And that's why you waited until my time rolled around. Yeah. Um, and there was like there was a there was a couple of people that there was some pearl clutching over that <laughs> article. Um, there were some rich people from the Bahamas that right? did not appreciate that article. Um, but but I mean, like most of the feedback I got was like, uh oh, finally somebody finally. said. Uh, right. right which is which is um I, I mean i gotta say that's that's the that's the one word that i'm always gunning for in anything that i write is for people to be like ah finally finally someone said it uh, yeah. i think that's that's the the highest that's the highest praise sure. yeah, finally
0: well i uh I realize that we're over time and I still have like, all I want to do is keep asking about this. Um, I guess um, I'll have to, hopefully we we can have you back on when the, when the book of dialogues comes out. Um, I know you're at your, uh, your conference last year, uh, your, your sections on student ministry or kind of student life. I I found really compelling and it sounds like you're going to be getting it at at some of those conversations with the, with that book. So I'm excited for that. Do Do you have a name for the book?
1: Um I have a tentative t- man, I'm really um itchy Don't, about you, this because the, the tentative title is divisive. Um and maybe you can get some feedback on your show. Yeah. Um the tentative title of this book is A Parlay with Youth. Okay. Which some people hear and they're like, God, that's awful. Why would you go with that? What's the word parlay mean? Um and then and then other people think that it's that is catchy. Um, yeah. So that's a, that's an tentative title right now. I'll parlay with you.
0: I will say, I, do you, have you come up with all the titles for your books? Because you, you somehow like they are all very catchy.
1: Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, they are they uh, all the titles thus far yeah. have been devised over the dinner table while talking mm. with my family.
0: It's incredible. Um, all of
1: them have come up. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of the the original titles were were really terrible. And then in talking about what the title ought to be right. with my wife and my daughters over dinner, something comes up, and and someone, not always me, is like, "That's the
0: title. That's it. that's, that's yeah. what you
1: should." Yeah,
0: yeah. I can't imagine the conversation where "Love What Last came up, but um, I like a, I like a parlay with youth. I feel like you get that kind of. Uh, you think it, uh, it, it works? Well, yeah, the, well, the part the part of it, it kind of gets that um, parlay is like a, I don't know. Uh, uh, I don't know the right way to, to phrase this, but like that, it's like an older word. Like you're kind of getting that piece of it where it's True. Like kind of a, a heavier conversation with more weight to it, and you're very clear of who you're talking to. So
1: I don't know. Yes. Don't know and when I think of when I think of parlay, I, I think both of gambling, <laughs> and I think of um, what the the first thing that comes to mind when I think of parlay is like the like the scene in the movie where the two generals on opposing yes. sides of a battle like meet in the middle, and they're like. Yes. You should surrender. No, we'll never. And um, uh, that's but that's the parlay in the middle.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so because parlay like both connotes these kind of like high and low, like high and low images are connoted by the term parlay. I kind of liked it as a description of conversation with students. So um
0: it's probably what a lot I of those think, conversations uh, feel like too, right? That they're between like two yeah. warring factions, right? I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they often, um, yeah. Yeah, there's um, students often come like they like come to the conversation that way. Yeah, but um, but it's but it's a bit of a false front, hmm. and they and they want like big conversations with students are almost never what they appear to be at first sure. blush. There's always this, this deeper thing going on, um, and so like if a you know if a if a female student comes to me um, and and she opens a conversation with something like uh, I'm dating this non-Christian guy but it's really okay I know what you're thinking um, like no one no one starts that conversation in earnest right but they have like right. right, all of these things going on um, and they they want to be convinced they want to see if you're convinced. Um, they, they're trying to convince themselves. And, and so, um, that's, I mean, that's often the attitude that I took when I was dealing with older people. Like often, I think teenagers are testing for weakness. Um, I think, I think the smartest teenagers come to adults testing for weakness and they, they want to believe that adults are smarter. They want to believe that experience counts for something. They know that they don't have any experience. They're desperate for somebody who has experience to confirm what they think about the world. Um, and, and so they come in there and they're almost never presenting a straightforward argument. They almost always have like multiple goals that they're working on whenever they're talking. Um, and I, and I, I find those conversations really fascinating. Like, like when you sit down and you, and you talk with someone about some moral issue, and you know that they've got these conversations with their friends, they've got going, they've got conversations with parents. You know that you're not the first teacher that they've asked about this. You know, there's like other adults that are bouncing what you're saying off. Um, I love those conversations because I remember, I remember doing that when I was a kid. You know, I remember like trying to trying to figure out where adults disagreed with each other, yes. um, where my teachers disagreed with each other. And I was always fascinated whenever I could get my teachers to disagree with each other. It was like, um, you know, it was like finally something's along the line, something counts, something really matters.
0: Right. And some part of it also has to be um, the student wanting to see if the teacher really believes the things that they talk about. Like, uh, right. like they know that they're doing something wrong, but will the, Will the teacher kind of give in and just like, oh, do whatever you want to, because that thing I've talked about right. doesn't actually matter. Um, and maybe that's the testing for weakness you're talking about. But just like, uh, how serious are they about this thing that they talk about in abstract? But when it's actually me that right. they're talking to, are they going to like tell me the truth?
1: Right? Are they going to sound the same? Look the same? Yeah. When it's one on one, is yeah. When there is when it's a group or the classroom. Yeah, I'm
0: excited for that. That's uh. uh I said it at the beginning. I just want to say again, uh, really enjoyed love what lasts. Um, it's a great book. Thank you. Um, I'm still, you. Uh, your, your output is again that you're, you're doing, you, you still have the podcast. You still have Cedar room. You still have, Oh, um, uh, your conference. We should talk. You have, um, your, yeah. um, your summer conference is coming up, I think in just a few weeks at this point. Um, yep. do you want to talk two, about that a little bit before we? Yeah.
1: Sure. Yeah. It's a little over two weeks. um, so, June 23rd and 24th, Gibbs Classical Online Conference, um, second annual. Uh, all, the, all the lectures are on very practical classroom matters. Um, almost all of the titles of the lectures are how to teach this, how to teach that, how to teach various classical words. Um, tips for teaching history, tips, <clears throat> excuse me, tips for teaching rhetoric, um, how to teach political philosophy, ideas on how to test on all these things. Um, approaches, uh, to commonly taught books like Pride and Prejudice, Paradise Lost, Divine Comedy, Frankenstein. Um, how to present these books, how to, um, uh, what kind of themes are best to highlight when you're talking to 15 and 16 and 17 year olds about these books. Um, the, go- the goal of the conference is to be as practical as possible. Um, as with the first conference, my goal is, um, is to give teachers ideas that do not require a curriculum purchase and do not require board uh, approval to implement that. You hear the idea, you, um, you walk into your classroom and you implement it, um, the next day.
0: And then, uh, I guess same as last year, will you be, um, sending out the, the, the text of the, of the lectures as well?
1: Indeed. Um, so this year, last year there was eight, eight lectures. This year there's nine. Uh, and I'm giving eight lectures and then, um, and then a colleague of mine is delivering a ninth on, um entitled how to teach Latin lesson classically. Uh, he was my kid's Latin teacher. He's fantastic. I can't wait for everybody to hear him. Um, so the text of his lecture won't be going out, but the text of all eight of my lectures will be going out as a PDF. Um, so if you hear something in the lecture that you're intrigued by, um, you can find it easily later. If you're uh, persuaded by the argument in the lecture, You've got a text of the argument that you can deliver in your own school right. um, and pretend that it's yours. Um, I, I, I want the, the ideas and the lectures to to disseminate and so try to make that as easy as possible. for. People.
0: And is Gibbs Classical the best place for, for people to go to sign up for that?
1: It is, yeah. GibbsClassical.com and then um, hit the conference button at the top. should take you to uh, the conference uh, schedule with descriptions of all of the lectures and then the uh, registration as well.
0: Sure. And I'm, I'm sure I've said it, but the three of us went, uh, attended last year. It was just, it's incredible material. And then that. Thank you. Just, you know, in in honesty of not being able to attend all of them as they're happening live, just getting, you send out the videos too, don't you? Like, you would get yes, all that content afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that plus the getting the text of it was just a huge benefit. So um, we awesome. really enjoyed I'm it. I'm so, so pleased to hear that. Yeah. And um, trying to think what I mean again, you do so much. Um, You know, your your short introduction to classical Christian education is also very good. But thank you. Probably podcast for another day. But um, yeah, that one just
1: came out uh, three months ago. Maybe I think
0: is it is it excerpts from Love What Lasts? It feels it's similar content.
1: There's there's no copy and pasted line, of course, of course. But um, but it's. uh, but it's similar. Yeah I, yeah, I would say short answer the classical Christian education is a lot of the central ideas of Love What Lasts yeah. presented with a particular angle towards classical Christian education. So, right. um, Love What Lasts was a kind of conscious attempt to uh, make a defense of classical things. It's really not staked in classical Christian education. Mm-hmm. Like, I would love for Love That's What Lasts to get beyond the classical Christian world and for people just in the broader Christian world to read it. Um, so it's it's not a Love What Last is not a book about um, why you should send your kids to a classical Christian school. Yeah. Um, it's about how you determine what your family and what your kids listen to, what you read, how you spend your time, what clothes you buy, whether you ask for a kid's menu when you go to, when you go to a restaurant. <laughs> um, it's a uh, the, the term is embarrassing and humbling but, but is it really a lifestyle book um, whereas the short introduction to classical Christian education is what an interest in older things or a preference for older things has to do with classical Christian education um, and, and what classical Christian education has to do with the concept of, of old things and why classical Christian schools revolve around old things uh, as well as what the word Christian means when we talk about classical Christian education? Yeah, um, because cr- normally if you throw the word Christian in front of something, it means it's trash. <laughs> um, so
0: uh, <laughs> Christian music, like, Christian movies, Christian yeah. music,
1: Christian, right? Like uh, you, right? Like the the point is made in the pamphlet. No one thinks of Bach as Christian music. Everyone thinks of Bach as classical music. Everyone thinks of Dante as classical poetry. Um, and these things could be described as Christian things, but normally when we use the word Christian to describe something, we mean like pop Christian, this or that. And it's kind of ephemeral and it's, and it's here today and going tomorrow. Uh, um, and so is, uh, I think it's fair to ask if you don't know anything about classical Christian education, is the Christian part just make it like, uh, you know, um, CCM music and missions trips with, the youth group and youth group Sunday where some 17 year old kid preaches the sermon like is that really what the word Christian means sure. when you refer to classical Christian education or is it something fundamentally different and it is something fundamentally different and so the pamphlet offers an explanation for that
0: sure and if anyone's interested in that you recorded an audio version of that for I hate to recommend another podcast but the anchored podcast <laughs> that's uh, put out yeah, by uh, CLT CLT um, so yeah, you can uh, hear the whole
1: thing before you buy it
0: yeah, but that's excellent, obviously. But what people need to do is go out and buy the book, which um, is, is Circe Institute the best place for people to go and, and pick up the book?
1: Circe Institute is the best place to buy Love What Lasts. Um, Gibbsclassical.com is the only place where you can buy the pamphlets, though. Perfect. And it's the only place where you can get um, a registration for the conference.
0: Perfect. But, uh, yeah, everyone should go to, to Gibbsclassical.com. Uh, everyone should pick up Love What Lasts from the Circe Institute. Um Josh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, oh man, thank you, thank you so much. Hope to have you back on again.
1: I'd love it. Thank you.